Luke 14. Last week, we looked at Luke 13. Jesus is, it's a Sabbath. He's in the synagogue. He heals somebody. And then he uses the reaction of the religious leaders. They don't want him healing people on the Sabbath. He uses their reaction as a springboard to begin to uh, correct some misunderstandings they have about the kingdom of God. And the two things that we focused on were the idea that the kingdom is like a mustard seed and the kingdom is like yeast, like a, a mustard seed, the encouragement for us, it's okay to start small. We don't want to get upset or lose hope. If we don't see a lot happening, the kingdom starts small, it grows large, and also just a little bit goes a long way. Even when the kingdom's small, like yeast, it's influential beyond its size. And we were saying both of those things can bring hope to us. Today it's a very similar setting. Jesus, again, it's another Sabbath day. This time he's in the home of a Pharisee, not just any Pharisee, but a leading or a ruling Pharisee, someone who's socially elite. He's in the house of this Pharisee on the synagogue, and we're going to look at several things uh, that Jesus wants to, uh, I think, show us. There's four things, which may be two things too many, but you're smart, so I think you can, um, I think you can keep up. One Sabbath, When Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and he sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if any one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. So let me give you just a little bit of background on meals. Meals or feasts, those type banquets, different set of rules for them than for us. So two very strong rules. And these weren't just suggestions. These were taken very seriously during the time. The only people who you would invite to a meal at your house or to a feast or to a banquet, to a party that you were holding, were people who were on your level socially or slightly above you. You would never invite anyone who was beneath you on the social ladder. And that social ladder was, it was very uh, clear. It was well constructed. Everybody agreed what rung everyone else was on. And so if you were hosting a party, you would invite people who were on your level or slightly above. Again, never anyone below. Because if you invited someone who was beneath you, it would kind of pull you down a little bit. So these parties, the idea was that you would maintain your status Or maybe get a little bump because of someone who came. And the second thing is if you said yes to an invitation, so if someone invited you to a party and you said yes, then you were obligated to then reciprocate and invite them back. Both of those things. So that's kind of what's going on as we, all of the things that we're going to read today revolve around meals or banquets or feasts. And just keep that in mind. You only invite people who are on the same level as you are or better. And if you say yes, then you're obligated to reciprocate. So the first question for me is, why did they invite Jesus? This Pharisee is a socially, religiously elite man. Why would he invite Jesus who wasn't of the same standing as him? And I think it's pretty clear he was trying to trap him. He says they were watching him very closely. That idea is they were looking for a way to to, to catch him in something. And you can also tell that because they invited this man who was sick. Pharisees were very strict about who would eat with them. They would never never eat with anyone who was unclean. If you were sick, you were unclean. They didn't invite that guy there to eat. They invited him there to see what Jesus would do. The Bible says he had abnormal swelling of the body. Your Bible may say dropsy. 
I think the current word for that is edema, E-D-E-M-A, and it's exactly what that is. It's your swelling. There's uh, retention of fluid. You swell. It's not a disease. It's a symptom of a disease. It's heartbreaking, but it's not life-threatening, and it's, it's obvious. It's obvious that this is what this guy has. It's obvious that this guy's not physically well. And so I think they bring him basically as a plant or as a trap. He has, again, an obvious physical condition. It is the Sabbath, and they just want to know what's Jesus going to do when he sees this guy. It was okay to heal somebody if it was a life-threatening situation. So they bring in someone who doesn't have a life-threatening but a heartbreaking situation to see how Jesus is going to respond. Jesus knows this. He says, is it okay for me to heal on the Sabbath? Of course, they don't say anything because in their mind the answer is no. They just want to see what he's going to do. He heals this guy, and then he basically guts them. He says, you guys will take care of your own. You'll take care of your kids. You'll take care of your animals if, there's, if they need to be rescued on the Sabbath. Why can't we take care of this guy? If you're willing to take care of your ox or your donkey, then why can't we take care of this child of God? And, of course, they don't have any response. This is, a, this is the third time in Luke we've seen Jesus heal on the Sabbath. And I think what's going on is Jesus wants to make a point. God, who inspires the Bible, wants to make a point. The religious leaders really misunderstood the whole concept behind the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given in order to to create space in people's week for rest and restoration. And it had become anything but in Jesus' time. It was a huge burden For people to try to remember all of the things they could and could not do in order to honor the Sabbath. I think we've looked at it before. I think there were 39 activities that people could not participate in. And those are just the big headings. That doesn't include all of the subpoints underneath each one of those headings. It's overwhelming. A day that's supposed to be a day of rest. I'm not sure that people thought they could do anything once they got up out of bed. There would be constant pressure, constant wondering, is this okay? Is that okay? Is this an exception to the rule? And Jesus is trying to cut through all of that and say this was a day for restoration, for renewal, for refreshment, and for rest. And y'all have made it anything but. And I think that's why if you read particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus repeatedly violates the Sabbath. He's trying to get back to the heart of it. For us, just real briefly, we don't have a ton of time to spend on this, but we live, we don't live necessarily in a religiously busy culture, but we live in a socially busy culture. Everything about our life is really busy, and we need to be reminded of the fact that we need to rest as well. I'm not going to use the word Sabbath. I think that's, for many of us, that speaks to a particular day, again, with all these rules. I don't know that that's helpful, but the idea of rest, it's found in Genesis 1 and 2 which is before the fall, that means God, that's how God originally set everything up. He set us up to rest. He worked for six days. He took the seventh day off. Adam and Eve, their first day was that seventh day. So the first thing Adam and Eve did was nothing. The first thing they did was rest. And then everything else in their life, their work flowed out of their rest. We rest from work. They worked from a place of rest. Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hebrews 4 talks about the rest that God invites us to enter into. And I want to strongly encourage you, for many, fall is busy, but so is winter, and so is spring, and so is summer. And some of us, we just think, well, when fill-in-the-blank happens, then I will rest. 
fill in the blank never happens. It doesn't. Some of us think we'll rest when we retire. You won't. It's either a, a, a rhythm in your life or it's not. Real quick, you rest two different ways. There's a vertical and there's a horizontal. You need both. Vertically, it's refreshment. It's being with God. He is the one who restores your soul. That's Acts 3.19. Times of refreshing come from his presence. So for all of us, we've got to find a way to connect with God. Our, our hope is that Sunday morning is a place where you are refreshed and renewed. It's one of the reasons we sing three or four songs instead of one. We want to give you time in the presence of God. And our hope is, that's when you, is that you are refreshed, renewed, and restored in his presence. But you also need time individually not just on Sundays, where you are resting. And so the question is, how do you connect with God? What does that look like in your life? Do you worship on your own? Is it, for many of you, you, when I'm saying connect with God, you're thinking quiet time. And if you're honest, your quiet time is not restful. It's responsibility. You're checking a box. If that is where you truly meet the Lord, that's excellent. If it's not, let's find something else that works for you. I walk to work three or four days a week. That's where I connect with him. Sometimes I pray. Sometimes I listen to music on my little iPod. But that's, that's my time. That's how I rest in the Lord. I'm not sitting in my chair. I get distracted. I'm walking. But I don't bring an agenda. I don't talk on my phone. I'm either praying or I'm worshiping. Some of you can't do that. You can't walk to Atlanta every day. You've got to find something else. What is it for you? Is it the mountain? Is it... Do you like to ride your bike? Is it sitting in front of outside? Is it in your, on your couch? Is it journaling? Is it solitude? Is it silence? Is it in the Word? I don't know. Figure out for you where, where are the places where you meet the Lord. And the other is recreation, and it's just as important. For many of us as adults, we think playing is for kids. And if we play, we feel like we're being selfish. We're wasting time. Rest is wasting time in that sense. Rest is intentionally ceasing productivity. If you're being productive, then by definition, you're not resting. You're doing something. You're accomplishing something. So what do you enjoy doing? That's rest for you horizontally, and it's incredibly important. I would say weekly. What does that look like for you? I go to the gym three or four times a week. That's not rest for me. I go to the gym so I can eat candy and not weigh 250 pounds. That's it. (laughs) If somebody can come up with a way for me to to eat what I want and not exercise, then I won't exercise. That's not recreation for me. It may be for you. I like to read. That's recreation for me. We talked about this at our how-to. If when you read, you always have a highlighter and you're taking notes, that's probably not rest. You're probably trying to learn something. There's nothing wrong with that. But is that what you do for fun? Some of you are extroverts. For you, fun is being with people. Going to a football game or having people over or going out to eat. There's not really, as long as it's moral, there's not really any parameters on what recreation looks like. It's how God has wired you to have fun. And I'm telling you, you need to give yourself permission to do that. Rest vertically, rest horizontally. Jesus is trying to recover the Sabbath for his people. That's why we see three miracles on the Sabbath day, and we need it recovered for us as well. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So this is a parable. I don't want you to hear this as a way to get ahead uh, in a feast. 
When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We're going to pause there. So Jesus is watching everybody jockeying for position at this party. Now, again, think everyone at the meal is on the same social status. Maybe a few are a little bit higher than others. But that's, and so they're jockeying for position. The idea is the closer you are to the guest of honor or the host, the better. That, those are the spots you want. So he tells a parable. Remember, a parable is a true-to-life story that has a spiritual meaning. You don't want to press the details too much. So again, Jesus is not saying, next time you go to a wedding reception, here's how you get the best seat. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, here's how y'all operate. So imagine you're at a wedding reception, and you go and you sit at the head table with the bride and the groom. Then imagine their parents come in, and their bridal party comes in. You're going to be embarrassed because you're going to get kicked out to a different table, because those seats are reserved for other people. And he's saying, you don't want that. That's humiliating. It's better for you just to take a regular seat, and maybe the host will come to you and say, hey, we actually wanted you up here with the bridal party. And you can go sit with them. And then your status is increased. Again, that's just that's a picture. We don't want to take that literally for how we try to get ahead. Because what Jesus says is that whole concept doesn't work. Those who are exalted will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the idea is God is the one doing the humbling and the exalting. If we humble ourselves, he exalts us. We exalt ourselves and he humbles us. Now for us, when we hear that word humility or humble, oftentimes we think, Thinking less of ourselves, self-loathing, beating ourselves up, calling ourselves a worm, that type of stuff. That's not a biblical way of thinking about humility. This is, we've talked about this book before. I want you to think about it again. It's $2 if you have a Kindle. And it'll take you 30 minutes to read. It is worth $2 in 30 minutes of your time. If you've got to order it, it costs $5. And it's still worth your time. Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. Read it once a year. Again, it takes 30 minutes. And the idea is biblical humility. You can see the quote there. It's not thinking about yourself too much or too little. It's actually not thinking about yourself at all. Jesus says the two greatest commandments are loving God and loving people. And that's what I want to be focused on. I want to be focused on loving God and loving people. I don't want, to, I don't want the grid through which I process reality, every conversation, every experience, every circumstance to be me. How does this affect me? How am I coming across? What are people thinking about me? If, if I'm my own filter, then by definition, there's no humility in me. Humility says I can agree with God that I'm created in his image, which makes me the pinnacle of creation, Psalm 8. And I can agree with God that I'm made out of dirt and that my righteousness are filthy rags. I can agree with him on both of those things because they're both true. And I don't spend any time on either of those. My responsibility is to love him and to love other people and not process things through the grid of me. That's self-forgetfulness. So what Jesus is saying here is honor is not something to be sought after. It's something that's bestowed and it's bestowed by God. And the people he bestows it on are people who don't care. It's people who are not concerned about their place. 
He will make a place for those who aren't concerned about their place. People who are fighting for their own place, they're going to wind up with no place from God. That's kind of what's going on there. And so, again, my encouragement to you, if this is a struggle for you, for some of you this is not a struggle, but for some of you it is. Everything, for many things for you, I won't say everything, many, of, many things for you, you process through the lens of yourself. You may not think too much of yourself, but you think of yourself too much. And you spend a lot of time. Has this relationship impacting me? Well, if I go there, how's that going to affect me? Or what are people going to think if I do that? My encouragement, let's figure out how to forget you in the best sense. Focus on loving God and loving other people. It's hard to do a negative, much easier to do a positive. So rather than you can wind up in the effort to try to forget yourself, you can wind up thinking about yourself too much. And so, again, I think the goal is to say, greatest commandment, I'm going to love him and I'm going to love other people. And that's going to be my focus. Now to the host of the party, Jesus says this. Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So remember the idea, if I invite you to my a dinner thing at my house, and you say yes, then you're obligated to invite me back. So when invitations are going out, that's part of the calculus. You're, you're weighing all of that. Well, who, whose house do I want to go to? Whose party do I want to make sure I get invited to? Well, the best way to do that is for me to invite you to something that I'm doing. And Jesus says, don't do that. He doesn't say, don't ever do that. He says, stop continually doing that. It doesn't mean you can never invite your family or your friends to your house or to a party. It just means don't only invite your family, or your friends to a party. Don't always invite people who can pay you back. Occasionally, invite people who can't. That's what he says about the cripple and the poor and the lame. They can't host anything. And so, if I'm inviting Nick to my house with the idea that Nick's going to invite me back to his, then that's it. That's the reward I get. That's not hospitality, and that's not generosity. It's quid pro quo. If I invite someone who can't invite me back, Well, then there's no reciprocation, and that opens me up to be rewarded by God. That's better, right? If I have to choose, as wonderful as Nick is, I would rather God reward me than Nick reward me. Because God can give me more, honestly, than Nick can. It may not look like stuff, but he can give me more. He's a better rewarder than any of us. And so, you can read Matthew 6. Jesus talks about the same thing when it comes to prayer and giving and fasting, He says, if all you want is to be noticed for the righteous things you do, then that's the only reward you're going to get. People are going to notice you and think you're great. But if you do those things in secret, then that opens you up to be rewarded by God. And he's way better at it than anybody else. This is a very similar concept. If, if, if in showing hospitality, I'm using that in quotes, all you're wanting is, is for that hospitality to be reciprocated, then that's the most you're going to get out of it. You're going to get this, you'll get the Christmas card back in the mail next year. That's what you'll get. But if you're willing to show hospitality to people who can't reciprocate, well, then you open yourself up to be rewarded by the Lord. And that's way better. We've talked before about one, to me, one of the greatest spiritual strongholds in our community is kind of this haves and have nots, insider, outsider kind of mentality. This is one of the ways that you can 
overcome that. Hospitality can really be like spiritual warfare in some ways. Some of you, this is your gift. Think about who you invite over. And think about intentionally, at least occasionally, inviting over people who are not like you. Think about intentionally, at least occasionally, inviting over people who are not in your circle. Truly extending an invitation. Truly being hospitable in the sense of being gracious to those who don't deserve it. Think about that. People who you don't normally run with. What would it look like for you to bring them into your world, at least occasionally? You're breaking down barriers at that point. You're breaking down walls. Jesus' issue with the Pharisees in this section is really that they're snobs more than anything else. And that's what he's getting on to them for. He's like, y'all are snobs. You only associate with your own kind. This is the definition of a snob. A person who believes, so there's two kinds. The first one I don't think matters. The second one is devastating. The first one, a person who believes that their tastes in a particular area are superior to those of other people. So you've heard this. Music snobs, coffee snobs, beer snobs, food snobs. Like, that's fine. Worship snobs. People can be a snob about anything. If you go to the grocery store and you see my cart and I've got Lucky Charms and Cheez-Its and cookies and candy and one bunch of bananas and you start judging me because there's nothing green or organic, then you're a food snob. Maybe. If you go to Starbucks and you have 17 adjectives in front of your coffee, you could be a coffee snob. Or if you're a coffee snob, you actually probably don't go to Starbucks. You probably, right, somebody said that's right. So that, that, music snob. Once it's on the radio, you don't listen to it. It's mainstream. You're not going to do that. That doesn't matter to me. That's just, you like what you like, and that's fine. Don't be high maintenance when you're around other people. If I bring you Maxwell House, just drink it. Do it. That's, that's that part of that. That second thing, though, devastating. Despises, for us, it's ignores. We don't really despise. We ignore or are patronizing to those we consider inferior. We don't consider anyone inferior consciously. But we live as if certain people are. And that's where you get these dividing lines in our community. And again, some of you, your deal is hospitality. That's what you do. Use that to break down walls, not to reinforce them. It doesn't mean you can never invite your family and your friends and people like you to do things. It just means don't always do that. I think one of the most helpful mentalities that we can take on, I call it missionary mode. I like four things to eat, and that's it. But if I come over to your house, I will eat everything you give me with a smile. That's missionary mode. I'm in your house. I'm not going to be high maintenance. I'm going to say, you are, whatever you've cooked, if it, I don't care how mushy it is, I'm going to eat it. I'm going to eat it, and I'm going to enjoy it. Not ju- I'm not going to grit my teeth. I'm going to enjoy it. Not because I'm a great person at all. It's this idea of saying, all of us, we live our lives as missionaries. Being a missionary doesn't mean I don't like what I like. It means I like what I like, but I'm not going to keep that from relation, to allow that to keep me from developing relationship with you. I like you more than I like what I like. And so I'm going to figure out how to build bridges 
with you. And you can begin to do that. It doesn't mean that you can't have any preferences. You can still be a music snob. But you may need to listen to Star 94 every now and again. Just so you can connect with everybody else. Or at least don't roll your eyes when somebody's singing Taylor Swift. (laughs) Figure out missionary mode. Where are the bridges that I can build with people? What are the points of connection that I can make? I can like what I like, but I'm not going to use what I like as a way to keep you at arm's distance or to prevent me from connecting with you on a deeper level. Again, for some of you, the hospitality thing is big, and I want to strongly encourage you, and don't think that's nothing. I talk to people all the time who think hospitality is some kind of, it's not really a spiritual gift. It's like, well, I just... That for whatever reason, it seems less than. It's never less than. And where we live, it particularly is not less than. Incredibly important to open up your lives and your home to people. That's a way of breaking down walls. And again, for all of us, we can have that missionary mindset that says, how can I build bridges? How can I make connections with whoever I happen to be around? Last, when one of those at the table with them. So that, that's all tense. This is not an enjoyable meal for anybody. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. That's him trying to break the tension. Jesus said, it doesn't work, by the way. Jesus says, A certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought the yoke of uh, five yoke of oxen. and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. There's that same group again. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel. That word is actually strongly urge. It's not force. It's strongly urge and persuade them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of these who are invited, excuse me, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. So one more little thing about banquets Uh, during this time. There were two sets of invitations. So the first set would go out, and it was kind of like an RSVP. So I would say, I'm having this thing on this day, and I would send out invitations to some of you and say, will you come? And you would say yes or no, and that let me know how many people to prepare for. We're not running to Costco. We're actually killing animals. And so I need to know, how many animals am I killing? And it takes a long time. And so RSVPs are really important. And then, once I've gotten all that prepared, because it takes some time, then I would send out a servant to say, okay, the food's on, come now. So there's two sets of invitations. The first one is what we would, it's like the RSVP deal, so I can get a head count and know how much food to prepare. And the second is like the dinner bell. Food's on, come now. What these guys, they're all rejecting the second invitation. They've all already said yes the first time. They've said we're coming. He's the, 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 the host has prepared for them. Then he sends out his servant to say the food's on, and they all come up with an excuse. Again, this is a parable, so we don't need to nitpick the excuses and what's going on there and what's not. It's just a picture of priorities. All of these guys had something come up that they deemed to be more important than their original yes 
to come to this banquet. This banquet is a picture. Uh, Revelation 19 talks about the wedding feast or the wedding supper of the Lamb. You think about a, think about a wedding reception. Not finger food, not hors d'oeuvres. This like sit down, real deal wedding reception. That's what we're talking about here. A wedding feast in Jesus' time might last like seven days. Huge deal. And that's what he's inviting them. That, that's the picture for us. We're being invited into something like that. And so we have these guys who reject. And so the hostess says, we've got we to fill up the room. We've got the food. Let's fill up the room. So you invite those who are least likely, the blind and the lame and the crippled. We've already got them. Then go out even further. And bring in more people. And he said the reason that you have to bring them, the reason you have to compel them to come, again, is this idea that if they say yes to you, then they've got to turn around and host you at something and they can't do it. And so that's why they have to be convinced to come. These are people who can't pay the host back. And he says, I don't care. He's breaking all kinds of social conventions. I don't care if they can pay me back. I just want them here. If you're a Pharisee and you hear that, what do you hear? We said yes initially. We are the people of God. And now we've got this, now the kingdom is coming. And we're rejecting it. And so the king is asking other people to come in. People who we see as inferior. The unclean, poor, lame, blind, crippled. And then going out even farther and getting Gentiles. Those in the country lanes and the roads. And they're going to be the ones who come in instead of us. Last week we talked about the narrow door. And we said that can, for some of us, feel stingy. Why in the world is the door so narrow? Here you see a great banquet. So it's the same heart of God. Narrow door, great banquet. One kind of speaks to it's exclusive in that there's only one way in. The other speaks to there's a ton of space. And the people who aren't at the great banquet are people who chose not to come. They'd been invited and they rejected the invitation. They said they had better things to do. And we can weigh their excuses, but that's all they were. They were excuses. Their priorities were out of line. So for us, the way I want us to hear that, we're not Pharisees in that sense. What I want you to hear is this idea of grace. We're being invited into a relationship. We're being invited into this banquet. And we're, we can't pay him back. We don't deserve to come. We're the guys who he's going out after. We're the poor, the lame, the blind, the crippled. We're the guys out in the streets and alleys and even farther out in these country lanes and roads. That's us. And God is pursuing us and he's inviting us in. And he's saying, I know you can't pay me back and don't worry about it. That's not what this is about. You don't have to reciprocate because you can't. And I know that you don't even deserve coming. You're not the kind of guys that come to this thing. And that's okay, too. You're the ones that I want. Can you hear that as an extension, as an offer of grace this morning? This is what you're being invited into. This incredible relationship being pictured as a wedding feast. And we could go even farther than that. You're not just a guest. Revelation says you're the bride. And you don't have the right things to wear, but he does. Revelation 19.7, I think it is. He's going to give us the right things to wear. 
fine linen, white. In Ephesians 5, pure, holy, spotless, without stain or wrinkle. You're not just being invited in as a guest. You have an opportunity to be part of the bride. Not because you deserve it, but because he wants it. Let's pray. God, I pray first for any here today who would say, I haven't said yes. God, I pray first they would hear you, not me. They would hear you issuing this invitation. There's a feast and I want you to be there. I want you to come. They wouldn't hear a generic, general invitation. They would hear you saying their name in their hearts this morning. I want you to be there. And God, would they say yes? God, I pray for people who feel like I can't pay him back. I don't have the right stuff to wear, therefore I can't go. God, would you convince all of us of the incredible vastness of your grace? Would you overwhelm us with that? Would you move us to a place where we can just receive? That's really hard for some of us. God, I pray for those who said yes. And now they're trying to clean themselves up and scrub themselves off. But they hear you saying, I've got a set of clothes that you can put on. Talked all about a lot of things this morning. They're not necessarily all connected together sequentially. I want you to grab one of them. You need to hear about rest. You need to incorporate, assimilate that into your life this morning. Is your deal, is it humility? You think of yourself too much. hospitality you feel like God is pressing you to step outside of your normal circle and to use hospitality as a way of breaking down walls is it grace fundamentally for you this morning just grab onto one of those the one that resonates most in your heart And this is what I want you to pray, if you will. God, I recognize that this area, and you can name it, is a place where I struggle. I pray you would convict me for the places where I'm missing the boat. convict you of some very specific things he may not and God I pray that you would now give me grace to move forward with you in this area 
And I pray you would show me specifically what does faithfulness look like. 